Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Welcome to episode nine. I'm Fraser Allen and the Scottish Business Network podcast is back after a short break. And I'm delighted to introduce the compelling story of Gary Turner. From innocent escapades as a 15-year-old digital shoplifter in Glasgow to developing the highly disruptive accountancy platform Zero, Gary has a fascinating and uplifting tale to tell. Inspired partly by his parents, he's firmly on the side of SMEs. Gary has lived and breathed the life of small businesses, the financial pressures, the hopes, the dreams, the fears, the chipped mugs and the daily sandwich van. And he tells his story with passion, humour and warmth, generating lots of food for thought in terms of business, new tech and ploughing your own furrow in life rather than simply doing what everyone else expects you to do. I hope you enjoy dropping in on our conversation, which was recorded via Skype in January 2019. Uh, Gary, so you began life in Glasgow. Your father has a small business and your mother did the bookkeeping for the business. And you had a kind of burgeoning, interesting technology. How much do you think this environment has shaped the the passion that you have for the the work that you're doing with, uh, with Zero? Um, I think it's shaped a lot. It, it's and, and that's a realization that I've only recently hit upon. Um, in that, I think I was um, observing. I was having a conversation with somebody, and I was getting really fired up about an issue, and about right. I can't remember what specific issue it was. It was about a year and a half ago, and I was getting really animated about how important it was that we addressed this issue because a lot of businesses struggle with with this particular area it was late payments or something mm. and i was like more enthusiastic than i perhaps needed to be and i and i, I thought where does that come from where does that like real passion for coming up with solutions to problems for small businesses it's not just a job it's not just like a vocation that i happen to be in this category it's there's something about it that um really inspires me and really gets me fired up and i think and i worked out i think it it, it must go back to my my my, my years back at home with my parents uh-huh. and not realizing it at the time but like over the dinner table in the evening and, and hearing my, my parents talking about the business issues of the day or a difficult mm-hmm. customer or a supplier that wasn't paying their bills or having to get a facility at the bank or whatever uh, whatever kind of operational issue they always get discussed at the, the dinner table and I would have been this rather uh, disinterested teenager at the time um, not really that interested in it. I, don't I was much more interested in technology and computing, but I think it must have kind of lodged in my my psyche in some way that um, I, I have this real um, kind of purpose and real focus about helping small businesses. And I think because I I witnessed how hard it is to run a small business firsthand in, mm. in our, in, in our yeah. family business a long time ago. And, and so I think that's where the passion comes from. And therefore, I think, um, I don't know, trying to right some wrong trying to stand up for the for the small business um because um nobody else is going to do that and it feels like quite a noble purpose i think yeah that's great that really kind of drives drives you on and and in terms of then drawing on your your background what um, what qualities do you think you inherited from your parents um oh good question i think uh a good working class Scottish um, attitude to, to 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 work, you know, I mean? like work, working right. hard, doing good work, mm. uh, being committed, 
doing what you say you're going to do, all those great, yeah. fine, outstanding qualities of how, how, to, how to do a good job, how to look after people, how to um, deliver, over-deliver on your promises, how to beat expectations um, and not screw people and not mess about and not be dishonest and, and some of the kind of yeah. characteristics that people sometimes hear about in, in business. Um, I, I, that, that's another thing, that the honesty and integrity are really important um, to me as well. I think uh, do a good job, and um, and and you'll be all right. And I think that's a big a big focus. Um, and and again, something I'm, I'm passionate about is that work hard, earn it, do the best job that you can do, and 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 success will take care of itself. You don't need to cut corners. You don't need to stiff people. You don't need to kind of um, mess people around just do the best job you can possibly do and i think i think that's a big part of of, of what's driven me also brilliant good stuff and, and so when you were growing up as a, as a youngster with all these things sort of starting to percolate around in your mind you also had this great interest in, in technology and, and computers which I, I guess i mean computers are so ubiquitous now but in those days it's not necessarily that easy to to find out stuff how did that what, what did you do? How did you get into computers and start to, to learn about them? Um, so, like most kids of my generation, it would have been pre- predominantly through school and friends and that kind of old, good old organic social network that we had back then. Yeah. Um, but although, although you're correct in saying that technology wasn't quite as prevalent, it, it was almost more magical back right. then because right. there was so little of it. Um, uh, it was much more enigmatic and... and, and um, there would occasionally be some article on the news about some new computer program being rolled out into some government department or um, Clive Sinclair launching the, the next Spectrum sure. replacement. Um, and, of course, a big, probably the big jump-off point for most people of my generation into technology, and probably even still today, would have been video games. So Space Invaders was 1978, I think. And that was this kind of almost alien, quite literally alien technology that started popping up in pubs and shops and amusement arcades and, and, and probably introduced and captured most people's imagination. So, so way, way back early on, like the age of 12, 13, 14, it would have been very much more about video games and computer games rather than building software. But you pretty quickly progress on from... Uh, the entertainment aspect of technology and to really, how do I make that move? How do I build this? How do I kind of in, influence what right. software can do? Yeah. And, and the magic of software is something that captured captured my imagination. Um, and then, of course, um, uh, being exposed to um, computing <clears throat> in school in a formalized way. So having um, like computing, a computer class or a lab, as they were being called in those days. Yeah. Um, and and, uh, and very fortunately, I managed to get up uh, my own. I had a BBC Model B computer um, and self-taught myself how to sit and write programs and understand how my, how your stuff works. So actually, it was um, magazines, talking to your friends, a couple of programs on TV, and just diving in with, uh, with both feet. Uh, and I believe in those early days, you're also something of a digital shoplifter. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, uh, probably um, with this claim clearly you should pay for software you should, you should never steal things <laughs> but like like all kind of teenage kids um, there was uh, well, the, the, the story that you're referring to is that me, me and a good friend of mine um, had written 
um, this program that was this is before the the age of kind of graphical user interfaces. And so, if you wanted to run software, you'd literally type in load open quotes, the name of the program, close quotes, and hit return, which is a very kind of command line way of, of, of navigating and getting stuff to work. And so we'd come up with this um, interface that presented all of the contents of a floppy disk and all of the programs that were on it. And you would load that interface program and then you then press one for the word processor or press two for or whatever else, um, which is a kind of time-saving thing. But what mm. we also had the idea of doing was have it do other things to verify the integrity of the disk. So it was like a verify feature. And what that would do is literally just verify there were no errors on the disk. And we had this yeah. really kind of uh, uh, great idea of a, of a prank where we would be, um, what it looked like it was doing, it was, it was verifying the copy, the contents of the disk. But actually what it was secretly doing was copying all of the contents of all of the bombs on the, on the disk. And we'd, we'd built this thing and we took it into one of the shops in Bath Street in Glasgow. And uh, with our kind of school uniforms on, and said, "Oh, can we, um, can, can, like, fifteen-year-old, unassuming, scruffs, can we yeah. verify this disk? We're getting read errors on it. And we put it into the demonstration machine in this shop, and a couple of minutes later, yeah, well, that disk is great. Thanks very much. <laughs> what we did is we we downloaded the spreadsheet app and the word processor app and the database app." Off the shop demo machine, which of course we had no use for whatsoever because we were fifteen-year-old. We weren't into spreadsheets in those days, but it was, um, yeah, I guess probably the first, um, the first uh, instance of uh, digital shoplifting in Glasgow for sure. Oh, excellent initiative, anyway. I'm sure they've forgiven you now. Um, and <laughs> so, I mean, leading on from school, I mean, a degree in computer science would have seen the obvious thing. I think that's what you did next, but uh, but you dropped out. Why, why was that? I did. So I think I, I, I wonder if, if um, I'd made any different choices uh, where, where I would have ended up. And, and certainly back in the early to mid 80s, if you had any inclination towards computing, um, then the pathways in, in the UK, certainly in Glasgow and Scotland, were not really that well developed. Uh, you, you, I remember sitting down very clearly sitting down with my career guidance teacher, and I must have been in like third year or something like that. And he said, right, okay, what do you, what do you want to do when you leave school? You have to have a plan. And I said, well, it's got to have computers in it because I just completely love technology and love computing. And he literally opened his big book of jobs and, and went to sea for computing. And, and, and then this book probably would have been like four years old, so maybe even longer. So this is like a 1970s like career guidance conversation. Uh, and, and, and there were three jobs that had anything to do with computing. One of them was data entry. Right. Uh, right. Didn't sound much fun. Right. Uh, then there was computer programmer and systems analyst. And I remember he the uh, and I said, well, which one pays the most money? And he said, well, systems analyst because it's like a, a bigger programmer job and i went well i suppose uh, i should be a systems analyst then <laughs> you know what i mean it was it was literally a one-track conversation mm. and there was no richness or variety in the technology yeah. industry in those days there was no specific product marketing or architects mm. or you know the, the, literally it was you're a programmer or you're a data entry person and I thought, well, okay, well, you're the adult in the room. I'll go with your recommendation. And so I guess I need to get a degree in computer science and, and become a programmer and a systems analyst, and that'll be it. And, it's, and I taught myself basic. And I could get, I could hack things together pretty quickly. And mm. so I could do it. Um, but I was much more interested in the end product than in the production of it. 
Um, and then, so by the time I then kind of set out on the um, on the degree journey, and I realised how um, mundane and how, um, uh, how how basic um, learning to be a programmer was, and I kind of was kind of interested in it, but I thought this isn't me. I can't I can't see myself sitting writing programs every day. Um, and building software. I, I love technology, but I don't love that part of it. And so mm-hmm. I stuck with it and then decided that actually it wasn't going to work out. And so I dropped out. And um, much to my parents' kind of um, disappointment and surprise. And I thought, well, I, I, I'm not going to do that. I, at least I had the presence of mind to realize early enough that it wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, and I knew I, I was going to be in technology, but it wasn't going to be in, in, in the back room so much as in the front room. And really my career since then, uh, and I fell into a, a, a small technology services business in Glasgow after dropping out and kind of learned from the ground up. That news to your parents, though, Gary. Did you did you have a, a fallback option when you said that you were going to be leaving uh, leaving the course? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, not at all. Not at all. And um, and so, yeah, that was a, that was a difficult time. Mm. Um, and so, well, I, I had the resourcefulness to, to well, I get a job somewhere, and I got a job um, in a computer shop at the top of West Nile Street called the Glasgow Computer Centre, which is now, I think, a big shop. Um, and I thought, well, I know, I know about technology. I, I, I need to put food on the table and pay rent, so at least I can get a job in some capacity in technology whilst I work out exactly what it is I'm, I'm going to be, because it's certainly going to be a programmer. And so I did that for a few months uh, and then somehow managed to um, end up in front of um, another um, business that was based in Glasgow who were a traditional IT services business and they were doing networks and hardware and PC and software development, everything that that small businesses would require from a technology point of view, this business did that. It was a business called Select Computing and they were in, in Berkeley Street. Right, uh, just in the city centre, and I'm and I was twenty, nineteen, twenty, and managed to talk my way into a kind of junior consultant job because I, I again I had this fluency and I had this ability to communicate my passions and enthusiasms even at that age, and they probably reckoned I I was worth a punt, and mm. I think that was a really um, and so that was my alternate degree. So I spent four years, nearly five years. In a, in a, in the front, on the front line of a technology services business in Scotland, met with hundreds, literally hundreds of businesses and kind of did a bit of a combined MBA and degree in computer science um, in the real world. And I oh, learned yeah. about yeah. The, the challenges that businesses face mm-hmm. uh, from a stonemason business to a candle maker to a glazier, you, you name it. Yeah. I, I had to go and learn about all of those business challenges and then come up with technology solutions and build products and recommend products that would help them. And so by the time I got to my mid-20s, I'd, I'd, I'd acquired this vast pool of experiences and insights mm. and understanding of what it was like to run a business and how technology could help that. Um, and, and, and pretty much, I think, 25 years later, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm just still enthusiastic and passionate about technology, still have this fundamental core about helping small businesses, and I've had an, an amazing career opportunity to kind of harness helping mm-hmm. small businesses with technology, and, and that's what I still do today, actually running zero 
is very much the same, calls upon the same um, resourcefulness and enthusiasms and the ability to communicate and the ability to envision where things are going that I've always been doing. So I consider myself 25 years later after dropping out even longer, mm. very, very happy to be still doing the same. The same. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, then, and after Select, you joined uh, Pegasus the Software Company yep. yeah, and became MD, I think, at just the age of 33. So what did you, um, what did you learn during that period? I learned a lot, actually. Um, and so I think my 20s were very much out in, in the world of business, out on the road and, 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 and understanding what it meant to run a business. And I can still picture so vividly, I've been in so many like some tiny little trading estate in the corner of nowhere in the middle of Scotland on a wet Wednesday morning. And and there's mouse traps on the floor and there's a dog asleep under one of the desks and the coffee mugs are chipped and the sandwich guy comes around at half 10. You can still picture so vividly what life is like for a small business. And I did that all the way through my 20s. And then by the time I got to my 30s and, and set of Pegasus, then looking at, well, how do you actually build and, and formalize and run efficiently a, a software company to service that, that community? And so by the time I'd got to my early 30s, I had all of this um, wealth of experience of what small businesses' problems are. And I'd been in technology companies for about a decade, and so I understood what was potential with, with, with technology. Um, and and somehow... Um, pretty early on was then found myself running what was for me then a huge responsibility but I had a great team I had a great finance director who would keep me on track and I learned a lot from other people and I think one of the things I've learned um through my career is always be sponging and learning and stealing and lifting um so very fortunate to be surrounded by some really talented people that that helped me and taught me uh, a lot along the way and so Really, really formative, and, and that's now well, 15, 15, 16 years later. Um, and I've been, in, in, and again, doing that, leading a technology company, inspiring people to think about where things are going, how to how to communicate, how to build, how to strategize, um, how to bring energy to the creation of, 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 of a business. And, and again, feel very lucky that I've been doing that for the last couple of decades. And you were also one of the, the earliest tech bloggers, weren't you? Sort of evangelist for what you were doing, communication. Yes, yeah, I was, I was. Um, and of course, you don't you don't really realise that at the time because there aren't that many of you around. But this would have been. I remember distinctly in two thousand, and of course, in the run up to two thousand, it was all about Y two K. Yes. Um, and 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 a lot of the focus was probably about fifty percent of what people spoke about in, in software in the late nineties was Y two K. And the other 50% was the internet because the World Wide Web had just hit mainstream adoption or begun to. Mm. And and so by the time we get to 2000, Y2K is done. The dot-com bubble has burst um, and, and things are all going backwards. And, and, and so, so there's a real period of turmoil around 2000, 2001 right. and, and effectively recession in the technology industry after such a boom period. But I knew that there was something, although the first wave of um, dot-com startups, and many of them are no longer here, clearly Amazon is still here, but many of them fallen by the wayside by then. But I knew that even although quite a few businesses had crashed and burned in the first dot-com bubble, that there was something fundamental about the internet and the web 
and how that was going to impact business. And so I remember um, kind of sensing that um, my kind of my little future sense antennae were kind of twitching. There's, there's got to be something to this, something mm. fundamental and profound in technology and in the web and the internet that we haven't quite seen yet, but it's coming. And so I spent quite a bit of time reading and researching and educating myself on how to build websites, how, how e-commerce operated, what the opportunities were, and, mm. and, and fell into this whole kind of world of, of blogging and technology blogging. Started my own blog in 2000, 2001, and would just sit and, and kind of ponder out loud in public every other day about what was happening and where it could all go. And it's right. quite funny if I look back at that stuff now, mm. but 18 years later, it all looks quite naive um, and um, and quite funny in some respects, and that yeah. we were so naive that we had no idea what it was going to turn out to be, but we knew something was happening. Um, but I, but again, I would put that down as as a really important formative uh, development period where I kind of fell in with the right or the wrong crowd, started kind of connecting people with people globally, speaking to the kind of real thought leaders and visionaries around the world that were shaping this new world that we're now in of technology. And again, this predates Facebook and it predates Twitter and LinkedIn yeah. and all these networks yeah. that we have. And so that was really the, that your blog was like your network node. Mm-hmm. And people that would come and comment and the comments that you would leave were the kind of interaction. And um, and that opened up many more relationships and, and doors to other people globally, actually, not, not even just in the UK, mostly globally, um, right. because there weren't really that many people in the UK doing it. And 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 certainly for for a few years was um, was active in, in developing my um, understanding of the new world world through through the blog, which is still there. If you, if you look hard, you can find it, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> well, interesting to look back. In fact, I was just reading a, a book about Microsoft the other day, or flicking flicking through it. It was written in 1996, and sort of saying, well, there's a chance they could still be around in 20 years' time, but it's hard to tell. <laughs> um, so, I mean, with with this, you obviously building a, a lot of knowledge and expertise and also building your own profile. Was this partly what led you to to be asked to join Microsoft? Uh, uh, p- partly. Um, uh, so it, it was funny. I was certainly – so this was during the time when I was a managing director at Pegasus, and I was kind of leading two lives, really. I was running a traditional Windows application software business, by day and then by night, I was kind of like on the frontier of this new emerging world of web apps and web uh, networks and an opportunity. And, um, and, and so really, the, the leaving Pegasus and, and going to Microsoft was probably more to do with my domain expertise and application software rather than the, the, the future web um, cloud world that we're now in. Yeah. Although that's what attracted me to Microsoft. I think I thought, well, if this world is emerging now, and this would have been about 12 years ago, if this mm-hmm. world that we've been that I've been predicting and writing about in my blog is now finally coming coming to be, then um, there's a pretty good chance that that being in an organisation like Microsoft might might enable me to realise that ambition. And so, actually, mm-hmm. it was what attracted Microsoft me to Microsoft rather than um, uh, the other way around. And so Microsoft hired a uh, kind of ERP, uh, financial management and accounting software guy, and I went to Microsoft because I thought the cloud might happen there. And, and it turned out that it's neither were really kind of massively satisfactory. Uh, and this would have been 2007. So this is in the kind of Microsoft Vista era. 
uh, Microsoft.net was their only real dog in the cloud hunt. They hadn't really reinvented the way that they have done incredibly in the last five years under Satya Nadella. And so, um, and it was also at the time of the global financial crisis. So there wasn't really much interesting stuff happening. It was it was about how do we survive the turbulence of the economic challenges as a software company, not reinvent the world of, of cloud software. And so, it was it, it was it was an incredible privilege working um, inside Microsoft, working with some incredibly smart people. But I guess it was just the wrong time. Um, mm. It was just as as technology and innovation went slightly fallow. Um, as Microsoft was reorganizing itself. And um, and so I, I was kind of like waiting patiently for this new world to, to kind of emerge at Microsoft and jump onto the right opportunity. And then before that happened, the opportunity to, to get into Xero um, showed up sooner. So that's uh, that's where I then went after that. So Xero started in New Zealand originally? It did. Um, and they approached you about setting up the UK business. So what, what happened at that stage? Yeah, so... Um, so Zero started a uh, very quick potted history in um, 2006. A uh, gentleman by the name of Rod Drury um, and his accountant Hamish Edwards and, and a couple of other people had this idea to build um, um, R- Rod's principal vision, which was for cloud-based um, accounting products. So cloud. I mean, Salesforce goes back to the late 90s, early noughties. So the idea of running an application on our browser wasn't new, but it just become much more feasible. And the user experience had improved around about 2004, 2005, thanks mm. in large part to things like um, Firefox and uh, dynamic um, web development environments and things like that. And so although you could have done it prior to 2005, 2006, it was a bit clunky. 2006, Rod Drury said, well, now's the time for us to build um, a small business accounting platform on the, in the cloud. Um, Rod Sakiwi um, was living in Wellington, uh, New Zealand, so that's where Zero began. Um, Rod invested the first uh, chunk of money and got the first uh, kind of lines of code built in the product. By 2007, Zero then uh, took the decision that we should list on the stock exchange in New Zealand. So I did an IPO literally right. about yeah. two weeks before the global financial crisis hit, which again was incredibly fortunate timing. Raised about ten million pounds and then went and hired a whole bunch of more people to then build the next kind of take the proof of concept into reality. And then by 2009. And, I, and I'm at Microsoft since 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, Zero had just launched a UK version of the product. Right. Um, yeah. we, we'd sent up Hamish Edwards, who was uh, one of the original uh, Kiwi co-founders, to come up to the UK to kind of like get the first, um, kind of a couple of accountants on board and hired the first couple of people. And was then heading back down to New Zealand uh, and was looking for somebody to kind of basically be, be the permanent managing director for the UK business. And so I was at Microsoft, and because I've been in the industry for a while, my name would have been at the, 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 on a list of people that they should be speaking to, and, and uh, a LinkedIn message saying, and I'd heard of Zero, um, I'd heard of Zero when they did their IPO, but I, by my old-fashioned software brain had convinced me that, well, New Zealand's are really far away and it's unlikely that I'll ever make it out of New Zealand or never mind into into, into Europe. And so I discounted zero, although it looked really impressive. But then when I thought, well, zero actually want to get going in the UK, that absolutely is the kind of opportunity that I was waiting to emerge yeah. at Microsoft and what I'd been writing about for the last kind of 10 years to that point. And so it was one of those kind of instinctive moments where the minute I heard that Zero wanted to be going in the UK, I thought, that's where I'm going to go. That's absolute, right, right, that's right. job. That 
they don't know it yet, but I'm the guy they need for that. <clears throat> and so um, went through what I consider to be the kind of formality of, of kind of speaking to the guys at zero and convincing them that I was the guy because I absolutely knew I was the guy. Um, quit my job at Microsoft, much to everybody's surprise because we'll, mm. and you're leaving Microsoft and a big salary and a big job to work for a software company that nobody ever heard of from New Zealand yeah. in accounting software. It was like the, the kind of degree of difficulty and the chances of success were so were, were respectively high and low mm. that it seemed must have seemed incredibly high risk at the time. But for me, it was um, the least risky option. It was like I, I completely knew. Um, and, I, and again, because I'd been waiting and writing about it and talking mm. about it and, and, and shaping and expecting this oppor- this kind of opportunity to come along. And it harnessed all of my experience in small business accounting software. It harnessed my passion for helping small businesses and it finally harnessed this new skill and new kind of learning I'd attained around the importance of web and web development for, for building new kinds of software business mm. and new kinds of products. And so it, it just seemed like... Um, the ideal opportunity and so I, I quit my job on a heartbeat and 10 years later um we 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 worked pretty hard at building um a, a great business and, and get a huge satisfaction of helping hundreds of thousands of businesses every day but i mean it was i mean it was a real a startup in the uk insofar as just a really small team of you wasn't there just just working from your homes i think we don't have an office so it's funny as we have over 300 people in the uk now we have two offices and coffee machines and pool tables and everything else um and it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have an office um we 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 opened our first proper office in the uk in 2012 which is seven years ago but that that seems like yesterday um, and so for the first two or three years, we were literally working from home. I, my, my spare bedroom was my office. Um, and I uh, got very, very adept at whatever I was like uh, talking to a big bank or a big strategic partner. And they'd say, oh, well, let's come, let's have a meeting. And they'd say, we'll come to your place. And I'd say, no, actually, um, I'll, I'm passing your office. I'll come to your place. And of course, I wasn't, I wasn't passing Canary Wharf or I wasn't passing Reading, but obviously didn't want to expose the fact that we didn't even have an office. And so they became very good at, um, at having meetings in everybody else's office for the first couple of years. And then we got to about five or six people, and the whole virtual team thing was great. But we knew we needed to really invest in going our headcount, having kind of proven that the base business was viable. Mm. And we then moved to an office. And uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm blown away coming into a, a business 10 years later that's, that employs over 300 people in the UK, uh, right. considering right. it was uh, uh, three, 10 years ago. So you were kind of the, the David who took on the, the Goliaths, such as Sage, etc. Are you now the, the Goliath? I mean, are you worried about people taking a snipe at you, you know, new startups, new, new ideas, etc.? Um, I'm not. Um, and, and that's because um, I have a complete phobia. <laughs> um, and that we, 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 may, we may well be... Um, significantly larger than we were when we started Mm. but i still have the view that we're still at the beginning and we still have it all to do um and so therefore um no no sense of 
real kind of achievement or satisfaction in putting our feet up and lining cigars with 50 pound notes yet Um, and therefore we're still hungry and although we have hundreds of thousands of customers we see the opportunity being measured ultimately in the millions and so we still think of ourselves i still think of us actually as as much more at the startup end of that journey although we're bigger than we were when we got going and so no sense of um um uh, being complacent in fact quite the opposite always um, being slightly paranoid i think is quite a good place to be <laughs> because it then also helps you keep ahead of where, where, where's the next we, we we certainly don't want another zero to emerge in our category mm-hmm. and to and to disrupt us in the way that we perhaps disrupted some of the incumbents that were there when we first got going and so i hope we're still hungry and anxious and slightly paranoid that we're we're not going to allow that to happen because um, we'd be letting ourselves down if we did. Right, right. And I, I mean, just to just close a couple of things I've I've noticed from following you on on LinkedIn is well, firstly that I, I believe you went to the dentist before Christmas and ended up providing quite a lot of tech help for their the way they were using zero. So I guess you're still very much focused on the. Um, on the end user, uh, you have that, that passion for the businesses, and that is part of what will keep the business growing. Uh, you know, not becoming distant yeah. from it, sitting in your own ivory tower. I am not. I, I don't. I don't know if. Um, I don't know if there is such a thing. I, I imagine there is, but I'm certainly not a classic managing director. You know, I, mean, I am. Uh, I, I, I'm driven by my passion and my love and my fluency for technology and for for helping small businesses. And and I get inspired and I get really um, enlightened and energized by just speaking to businesses about their problems and how technology can help that. As I said earlier, I've, I've, that's basically all I do. It's all I have done for the last 30 years. Mm. Uh, and and I still get still get the opportunity to do that. And, and you're correct. I was in, uh, seeing my dentist too, pleased to say as a zero user. And uh, and every time I go in, he's, he's asking me, some other question about how he can integrate it uh, more effectively with his kind of patient record management system and all of these kind of billing kind of questions and everything else. And so I love that stuff. I love still being mm. um, it, like getting the, the, the ability to kind of express my passion and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and helping people solve problems. Um, I'm, I'm probably a bit less up to date now than, than I was 20 years ago because um, I, tend to spend a lot more of my time these days kind of on business management and strategy rather than product development. Yeah. But I still love that. I still love that whole um, customer. Uh, yeah. You, yeah. One of the things I've learned um, is that it's really easy in business to spend so much time just in bloody meetings. You know, you, you just become a passenger in your own calendar and mm. you have this illusion of being busy because you're in meeting after meeting after meeting mm. and there's lots of important stuff that you need to do and discuss in meetings. But you can go for weeks or months and never meet a customer if you, if you live in a world like that. Yeah. And I'm always um, reminded every time um, I, I go out and visit a customer, if I'm out in the wild, I'm not in the comfort of my own office or a meeting room, I get what it's really like. I get to hear firsthand right. what a customer would really think, what the problems they're really trying to solve. We're not trying to, and we don't need to second guess that. And I always come back with five new insights or five new ideas or five new questions that I didn't have every time I meet a customer. And 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 and, it, it, and so one of the lessons I've learned is like you've got to somehow forcibly get yourself out of the office at least once or twice a month. 
right. and get in front of a customer and just let them talk and just understand what's in their world. And if you, if you do that, you'll constantly make sure that you're you're up to date with what's happening in the real world. Otherwise, you end up in this kind of abstracted, internalized, second-hand sure. version of what it is you're trying to fix. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when and, and that's when things, I think, start falling off and, and you start losing connection with what your customers really need. And so if there was one piece of advice I would give anybody in businesses, get off your backside, get out the door, and, and just spend a day, a month, or a couple of days a month, talking to your customers, mm. understanding what's what are their problems, what's their issue, how can you do a better job, um, where are you failing? Where can you do better? And and if you can do that, then you know, then you'll you'll keep you'll keep that really vital connection. Brilliant, brilliant advice, Gary. And um, just one final observation to kind of draw a, a circle on the conversation, I guess, because I noticed also that you were, I think you were picking up an awards um, quite recently as well. And I thought it was, it was quite an, uh, an interesting touch that you, you actually took your mother along to the uh, the awards ceremony. Which I thought was quite quite good. I did, I, I, I did, um, and so actually, um, and so the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers um, is the UK's largest um, bookkeeping um, community, and, and obviously train and certify bookkeepers on uh, on on that profession, um, and. Um, and we regularly go to their conferences. I'll try and compress the story down because it's actually quite, quite, quite a nice little way to finish things, I think, and and it kind of completes the circle. And and so we we go to their conference every year because bookkeepers are obviously an important part of Zero's community. And and most years I'll get up on stage in front of a few hundred bookkeepers and, and do an update on what's happening in the world of Zero and 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 being. A, 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 Having presented for as long as I've presented, um, then it's important to build empathy with your audience. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm, I'm talking to a, a room of 400 bookkeepers. And of course, my mother um, learned to do the bookkeeping for our family business when I was a kid. And so I always tell this little anecdote about, although I'm not a bookkeeper, I'm not mm-hmm. an accountant, I'm a technology guy, I, I know how important bookkeepers are. So the kind of they're the backbone. You know, bookkeeping yeah. doesn't get done, then bills don't get paid, money doesn't enter the bank, and actually, it's really, really important. And mm-hmm. so, I, every year, I tell this story about how I'm my my mother's son, and um, and have this reverence and real respect for the for the profession of bookkeeping. And 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 after a number of years of having done that, the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers this year, or sorry, last year, I should say decided to write a feature on my mum <laughs> because they, they, their conclusion was she clearly had such an impact on me growing up yeah. that I've become this champion of bookkeepers for the UK. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's really nice. So what a kind gesture to do that. And and so they wrote this little article and she was very bemused by it because she's retired now and she's like, well, why do they want to talk to me? <laughs> and I said, just go with it. <laughs> Tell them all the things you taught me when I was a kid about bookkeeping. And so we were invited along to their awards dinner um, mm. in November, and Zero was up for a couple of awards. But I was I'm blown away by the fact that they actually took my mom. I brought my mom along, to almost like repay her yeah. the job of being a bit of a case study. Yeah. It's like you've done me a favour, so we'll take you to the awards. And they gave her a, a companion of the institute certificate at the very beginning, which was a great, beautiful mm-hmm. touch. And so my mum is uh, arguably more famous among that community than I am there, which is a great way to end it, I think, because that's where it started. Perfect. That's great. It's been really interesting listening to, listening to you, Gary. Thanks very much. 
He's a really interesting guy, isn't he? It's a longer interview than normal, but I really didn't want to cut anything that he said because it was all so good. Apologies that the quality of the Skype recording is a little bit patchy at times. Hope it didn't put you off. Presumably not if you've made it this far. We've got plenty more big personalities from the world of Scottish business lined up for 2019 and we'll be back in a fortnight. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.